What's up, beautiful people? Welcome to the Demit Podcast. Here with your homie, Victor. Before we get started on today's episode, I did want to do a little housekeeping and update you guys on a few changes that are going to be coming to the podcast. One of those changes is going to be an increase in solo episodes for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, Sky is going through some personal things and they need to be situated before she's able to join us again. I do still have plans to have guests on the podcast just to offer different perspectives, one of which I hope to bring you not next week, but the week following that. Another change that we're making to the podcast is going to be the length of episodes. Typically, we try to record for an hour, but I will be reducing that to 30 minutes just so we can provide more concise information to you guys. And that's it. I am also thinking about possibly rebranding the podcast since the name was just a placeholder to kind of get us started, but that's still not really finalized and I'm still kind of stirring it around in my head. But now that we got that out of the way, we can get started with today's episode. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about was the fact that Texas and much of the South experienced two severe winter storms that have caused massive power outages, food and water shortages, and just generally dangerous um, weather conditions. The crisis began on February 10th and has left more than 4.3 million homes and businesses in Texas without power, some for several days. This weather phenomenon resulted in record low temperatures throughout Texas, with temperatures in Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio falling well below temperatures typically seen in Alaska. So that's pretty unprecedented, right? Texas has not seen these temperature levels in over 100 years, so... The power outages actually affected a total of 5 million people across the country, and 4.7 million people in northern Mexico since they heavily rely on energy from Texas, which has also started a discussion there about their reliance on the American power grid. Rightly so, I would say. What actually caused the power grid to fail was the power equipment, mainly natural gas pipelines, which have not been modernized to withstand the cold temperatures. Perfectly on brand, however, the Republican governor of Texas Greg Abbott instead blamed renewable energy sources for the power outages, citing frozen wind turbines as an example of their unreliability. The mayor of Colorado City, Texas, Tim Boyd, um, actually resigned due to a controversial Facebook post where he basically told his constituents, and Texans for that matter, that they should fend for themselves, that nobody owes them anything, and that it is not the government's responsibility to support anyone or give anybody handouts. Apparently, if you don't have your own power grid ready to go for when things like this happen, you're irresponsible and you need to be excised from society. Here are a few excerpts of what the post actually included. (laughs) If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep you and your family warm and safe. If you do not have water, you deal with it and think outside the box to survive and supply water to you and your family. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for somebody to come rescue you because you're lazy, this is a direct result of your raising. He goes on to say, Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. This is sadly a product of a socialist government. 
does anybody want to guess his political affiliation? But that's really what Republicans and conservatives do best, isn't it? Deflect, blame, and misinform the public to protect their real constituents, the energy conglomerates and corporations, and foment about the need for less regulation and more free markets. Governor Abbott later had to acknowledge that every source of power, not just renewable ones, had failed, as five times more natural gas than wind power had been lost. In 2011, Texas actually faced similar power outages due to frozen power equipment, after which the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission reported that more winterizing of power infrastructure was necessary. But instead of implementing regulations to make it mandatory, Texas leaders left it up to private energy companies to decide, many of which opted against the costly upgrades. Yay, free market. As of February 19, at least 58 people have died with deaths linked to carbon monoxide poisoning, car crashes, drownings, house fires, and hypothermia. And to add a little bit of context to that, during the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, four American lives were lost, and Republicans held hundreds of hours in hearings attempting to crucify Hillary Clinton. I'm curious. How many hearings do you guys think Republicans will be calling for after Abbott failed to protect the people of Texas? Let me know. And while millions of Texans were freezing, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas also faced scrutiny from allies and rivals alike for a hastily planned trip to Cancun, Mexico. Text messages from his wife revealed that the nature of the trip was to get away from the freezing conditions. Meanwhile, Beto Oruque, who lost to Ted Cruz along with AOC, set up a fundraiser on Twitter that quickly reached $1 million to offer resources to the hardest-hit Americans by the winter storm. Joe Biden also approved a major disaster declaration for Texas that makes federal funding available to individuals across the state, including assistance for temporary housing and home repairs, and low-cost loans for uninsured property losses. Again, guys, I'm having such a hard time discerning between the two parties. Somebody please help me. These two things are clearly alike. As of today, power has been restored to most Texas residents, with low-income zip codes being last, of course. Due to unregulated energy markets in Texas, however, many households are seeing energy bills of $10,000 or more. Essentially, the less power available, the more private wholesale energy companies were charging for it. They were clearly just trying to make a profit during a crisis, guys. Don't get so mad. All in all, the Texas power outages and water shortages are the result of laissez-faire free market ideology, which seeks to deregulate and privatize entire industries to the benefit of private owners instead of consumers. This is what happens when people consume free market propaganda uncritically. They then go out and vote for the politicians who spout such ideology, thinking that it actually benefits them. And I understand why. A lot of this stuff sounds intuitive. If you let the market do whatever it wants, it's going to provide more jobs for everybody, more wealth, etc. But there's a whole other equation that people seem to miss, is that private companies only care about profit consumers, the environment, and the social fabric be damned. Another part of that equation is that companies, especially when the corporate tax rate is low, hold on to their profits. They buy their stocks back and they basically give their investors bonuses. 
And we don't want that. We want that money circulating around. We want economic activity because that is how the economy actually grows. Examples like this latest crisis is also why it's so frustrating talking to people who spout idiotic statements like both parties are the same. Sure, Biden and Kamala Harris might have signed on to a crime bill in the 90s when crime was through the roof, but somehow, to some people, this is just as bad, if not worse, than the Republican response to COVID, the Republican embrace of Donald Trump and his rhetoric that inspires mass shootings like the one in El Paso, Texas, the Republican efforts to disenfranchise people of color from exercising their right to vote by gerrymandering, the Republican efforts to filibuster any meaningful change, the list goes on. And just to reiterate, this does not mean that the Democrats are above criticism. But if you honestly believe that both of these parties are the same, there is something completely wrong with your sensory system. But to move on from that, and on to some slightly more positive news, all major indicators of COVID-19 transmission in the U.S. continue to fall rapidly. Weekly new cases have fallen from 1.7 million at the national peak in early January to fewer than 600,000 this week. Cases have been falling sharply for about five weeks, hospitalizations for four weeks, and deaths for about two weeks. And this is mostly being attributed to the administration of vaccines, especially among the more vulnerable communities, and the warmer weather, which, you know, helps people go outside and have fun and ventilate their spaces and whatnot. Dr. Fauci had actually been citing August as the month by which the U.S. could vaccinate 70-80% to 80 of the population and reach herd immunity, but last week, he suddenly threw out May or early June as the window for when most Americans could have access to vaccines due to increased production and efficiency in allocating those vaccines. One concerning matter that is hardly being addressed, though, is vaccine hoarding by rich countries, which is preventing other countries, obviously, from being able to vaccinate their population. I think the US, Canada, and basically every first world country has actually purchased enough vaccines to vaccinate their entire population several times over, which necessarily means that there is less supply available for other countries. Now, there are also ethical dilemmas to weigh as well, such as the fact that teenagers are going to get vaccinated in the U.S. before older adults in other countries, which again is going to increase deaths and hardships for many people that are already struggling. Another thing to keep in mind is that if the virus continues to infect people, there are chances that it can mutate and render immunization useless. So even if you got a vaccine, if the virus is still circulating across the globe and it mutates so that immunization becomes irrelevant, we basically have to go back to square one. So again, as much as some people don't like it, we are all in this together and we have incentives to make sure that other countries have access to these vaccines and we can finally get rid of this virus. I, for one, cannot wait until it's my turn to get that vaccine because as soon as I do, my ass is going straight to Mexico. I don't care. <laughs> I'm so sick and tired of this country that I just need to leave immediately. So, hopefully it comes a lot sooner than expected. And while we're on the topic of COVID, I did also want to talk a little bit about the Biden administration in general, 
starting with the CARES draft or the stimulus package that is currently being negotiated. The Democrats released the draft, I think, earlier in the week, maybe Monday. And I'm just going to list a couple of the things that are currently included in the package. The first of which is obviously the $1,400 checks for people making up to $75,000 with an additional $1,400 per child and or adult dependents who have been excluded from previous stimulus payments. The draft also includes expanded weekly unemployment benefits through August 29th, which were set to expire on March 14th, and they also increase the amount from $300 to $400. There is also a proposal for increasing the minimum wage to $15 by 2025, which the Democrats have said that they will aggressively make the case for since questions have been raised regarding the minimum wage increase being included in the reconciliation process. And to add a little bit of context here, previous Republican reconciliation bills, like the one in 2017, included a provision to open up the Arctic wildlife refugees for drilling companies and implemented work requirements for beneficiaries of social programs, meaning that if you get EBT or something like that, you have to put in a set amount of hours of work to be able to qualify for those benefits. Since both of those things passed in the Republican reconciliation bills, the Democrats are willing to make that case for the $15 minimum wage increase. And I know a lot of people think that that should actually be higher now, but, I mean, you gotta take what you can get, I guess. Especially with how partisan our politics are and the obstruction the Republicans will no doubt put up. Here are some additional provisions that are also included in the package. The package includes $130 billion towards helping schools reopen. It includes $5 billion for the pandemic EBT program, $1.4 billion in programs for older adults in relation to nutrition, support services, and disease prevention. The bill also directs $30 billion to public transit, which has seen a huge drop in ridership during the pandemic. $7.2 billion towards PPP loans for small businesses. That is the best acronym, by the way. Um, it also directs $46 billion to the Department of Health and Human Services to detect, diagnose, trace, and monitor COVID-19. It also includes $4.5 billion to the DHHS, again, to help low-income people pay their energy and water bills. And finally... Although this is definitely not a full and complete list in what's in the bill currently, it also includes $5 billion in assistance to help communities provide shelter for the homeless. One thing to keep in mind, however, is that this is nowhere near close to a done deal, and much can still change before the final bill is approved. A more bipartisan deal is still possible, which will look pretty different from this one since Republicans hate handouts, but at this point it looks pretty unlikely since Biden and his administration seems pretty dead set on a big package. Last I heard, they were trying to make sure that this bill was passed before March 14th when the current extended unemployment benefits come to an end. So, there's obviously a lot of really good stuff in this bill. Obviously, the $1,400 checks are very popular. 
but also the ability for kids to go back to school I know will help parents a lot since many of them actually rely on school to essentially watch their kids while they go to work and provide meals. Finally, I wanted to touch on Biden's immigration plans. I've been hearing a lot about the deportations that are still occurring under Biden's administration. During the primaries, I believe, he actually stated that as soon as he got into office, he was going to sign an executive order to stop all deportations for 100 days. And deportations are still obviously occurring. So what's the disconnect there? Biden did, in fact, attempt to stop deportations for 100 days. But this decision was actually blocked by a Trump-appointed federal judge from Texas. This happened because the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, actually filed a lawsuit against the federal government to overturn this decision. Paxton argued that the moratorium violated federal law and certain agreements that Texas and several other states signed with the DHS, which requires the DHS to provide notice and a time to review if there are any changes to any immigration policies. The federal judge found that the state of Texas was able to prove that the pause established a substantial risk of imminent and irreparable harm to the state of Texas, and that's why the moratorium was actually blocked. So Biden did in fact make an attempt to stop deportations, but the outcomes were not what he promised. This goes to show the limitations of executive orders and the checks and balances that are placed on the executive branch, which also stopped many of Trump's harmful policies and executive orders, such as his ban on diversity training and attempting to give governors the power to turn away refugees that are trying to settle in their states. So I wouldn't necessarily say that Biden didn't keep on his promise, more so than this was just a loss for him. Because of this attempt, however, ICE did reprioritize deportations to focus on terrorists and spies, and even recently deported some Nazi uh, concentration camp guard. So that's a tiny win, I guess. More importantly, however, the Democrats have also introduced their immigration bill which attempts to make the most far-reaching changes in immigration law in more than three decades, according to the New York Times. The proposal offers an eight-year pathway to citizenship for most of the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. And the process begins with a background check and any payment of owed taxes, which will then allow them to live and work in the U.S. for five years. After that, they will be able to apply for a green card, giving them permanent status. And three years after that, they will be able to apply for citizenship. All in all, this is great because we want undocumented immigrants to be legal and have access to everything that residents and citizens have access to. But more importantly, this will also help them get involved in local politics and federal politics for that matter. And demand representation and accountability, which is great. The bill would also do away with any restrictions on family-based immigration, making it easier for spouses and children to join their families already in the country. Additionally, it will also expand worker visas to allow more foreigners to come to the U.S. for jobs. 
The bill also offers resources to process migrants legally at ports of entry, which the previous administration turned away, instead of increasing border enforcement and security like previous immigration bills have included. So this is just more efficient and more effective. Now, here's a disclaimer. The Democrats acknowledge that it will be difficult to win the support of the 10 Republican senators needed to pass the Biden legislation, as they will need a supermajority in the Senate for it to pass. This is why the COVID relief bill was passed as a reconciliation package instead of a regular bill, because when it's passed as a regular bill, you need a supermajority instead of a simple majority. The Democrats have a simple majority in the Senate, with the power or the voting power of the vice president. But if they pass this as a regular bill, they will need that supermajority, which can make the process a little bit more difficult. But that is this week's episode, guys. I'm sorry I'm still missing like 10 minutes, but this was quickly put together, as I didn't really plan to have an episode this week either, since we're still kind of figuring out which direction we want to take the podcast. But in the meantime, you can follow us everywhere at Dime Podcast and Podcast Dime on Twitter. And I'll catch you guys next week.